right. Good morning. Thanks for the warm welcome. Blessing to be with you here in Surprise. I live in San Diego and uh, grew up there. What? It's only 30 or 40 degrees cooler there. Um, but I feel right at home at a Calvary Chapel. I speak at quite a few Calvary Chapels. I actually got saved at a Calvary Chapel uh, in San Diego in 1990. That's where God got a hold of this atheist. Uh, who is drowning in sin. So I'm real thankful for what God has done in the Calvary Chapel churches and continues to do. I actually went on staff years later at a Calvary Chapel, was an assistant pastor for about 10 years. Um, But then God has made a way, uh, kind of opened a door for me to just go around the country now and speak on issues related to the defense of the faith. And I've been doing that for about 10 years. Uh, So I'm blessed to be with you here this weekend and uh, excited to share what God's put on my heart to share with you here today. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'd like to draw your attention to verse 13 and then make a couple of comments by way of introduction to the topic, and then I would like to pray again as well. Notice what Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen for you. He says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The Apostle Paul here commends the believers in Thessalonica for realizing that the scriptures he had delivered to them some years previously were not cleverly devised fables invented by deceitful men, nor were they the musings of some philosophers. He commends them for realizing and knowing for certain that the scriptures he delivered over to them were the very word of God. And I'm sure that most of you who are here this morning believe that to be the case regarding the Bible. You're convinced that the Bible is the word of God, written by men, yes, but men who were guided by God as they penned down its words. You're convinced of that as I am. But I think it's safe to say you probably have some friends and neighbors, maybe coworkers, who aren't so convinced, are they? Or perhaps they would be here at church with you this morning. They have questions about the Bible. Good questions. Questions like this. How can we know the Bible isn't just an ancient book of fiction and folklore? And haven't the contents of the Bible been tampered with down through the centuries? And isn't the Bible out of sync with scientific discoveries? And what about other books? What makes the Bible any different than other religious books like the Quran or the Book of Mormon? Those are questions that intelligent, critical thinking people are asking today, and those are questions they have a right to ask. I think they should be asking us those questions. God does not just demand that non-believers accept everything that we tell them about our faith. They can ask these kinds of questions, and we, as God's people, should be ready to give them good, solid answers when it comes to these common, basic questions about the trustworthiness of the Bible. 
So to help you be a little bit better prepared to do that in the months and years as we wait for Jesus' return, I want to share with you over the next 40, 45 minutes or so, seven different lines of evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible. Seven reasons I'm convinced the Bible is trustworthy and seven reasons I believe anyone can come to that same conclusion if they're open-minded enough to consider the evidence and follow it wherever it points. So let's go ahead and pray before we go any further, and then we'll uh, dive in. Heavenly Father, God, we're just, we're thankful to be here today, thankful to worship you, thankful for who you are, thankful for what you've done in our lives. And God, as we pick up an important topic here today, God, I pray that you would use this time and these different evidences to encourage and fortify the faith of my brothers and sisters here in this place. God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, but that you would also equip us to be better ambassadors of Christ, people who are more prepared to talk to people about why we take the Bible seriously. So to that end, we pray you would work here among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the first line of evidence I want to discuss with you for a few minutes is what we call fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Of course, sports analysts, political experts, and weather forecasters seem to enjoy making predictions about the future. But our failure rate quickly shows how inept humans are at foretelling the future. Even when we're talking about events that are just a week away, we make the wrong predictions over and over. Well, this is one of the reasons why the Bible's fulfilled prophecies are so astounding. Over and over again, the authors of the Bible rightly foretold future events, oftentimes hundreds of years in advance. The Bible is literally filled with hundreds of specific detailed prophecies about persons, places, and events, many of which have already come to pass. Consider a few of the prophecies made regarding Jesus. Of course, long before Jesus was even born, the Old Testament prophets told us that a savior one day was going to come into the world to make a way for sinful humanity to be reconciled back into a right relationship with our maker. The Old Testament prophets foretold that this coming savior would be a descendant of Abraham, that he'd be born into the tribe of Judah, and that he would come into the world through the lineage of David. God was very specific, and he began spelling that out all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, about 1,500 years before Jesus was even born. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 said that this coming savior would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. This was prophesied about 700 years before Jesus was born there. Isaiah 7 verse 14 said that he would be born of a virgin. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 declared that he would come while the Jewish temple was still standing. Well, the Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, and that would require a pre-AD 70 coming for the Savior. And of course, Jesus fulfilled that timing marker. Uh, Isaiah 35 and elsewhere even foretold the kinds of miracles that he would perform to validate who he was. It says there in Isaiah 35, he's going to open the eyes of the blind, he's going to unstop the ears of the deaf, and he's going to cause the lame to walk. Sound familiar? Very kinds of miracles we read about in the New Testament accounts of Jesus's life. 
Isaiah 53, verse 3, prophesied that he would then be despised and forsaken. Psalm 118, verse 22, said he would even be rejected by his own people. A Jewish prophet foretold in the Old Testament that the Jewish people would cast aside Jesus as the Messiah. And of course, that's what they did, didn't they? That's why Jesus was put to death, just as the Old Testament predicted. Daniel chapter 9 prophesied the precise year in history that this coming Savior would die for the sins of the world. Get out a good Bible commentary sometime on Daniel chapter 9. Daniel nails the very year of Jesus' crucifixion 600 years in advance. Amazing that he could do that. Uh, Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18, prophesied how this coming Savior would die. David, writing a thousand years before Jesus was even born, says that his hands and his feet are going to be pierced during his death. Now, this might have been somewhat confusing to people back in David's day. Hands and feet pierced? What's he talking about? It might have been confusing to them because this was at least 300 years before the art of crucifixion had even been invented. Yet with the aid of the Holy Spirit, David was able to accurately describe the events surrounding Jesus' death a thousand years in advance. And they didn't stop there. Psalm 16, verse 10, and Isaiah 53, verse 10 said that this coming Savior would then rise from the dead. Friends, these are just a few of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' life. You could do hours of studies just on these kinds of prophecies related to Jesus. And there's hundreds of other prophecies in the Bible about the rise and fall of different nations. There's prophecies foretelling about uh, the regathering of the Jewish people back into their homeland, something that's being fulfilled right now in our own lifetimes. Well, the fulfillment of these prophecies is compelling evidence that these men spoke with the aid of the all-knowing, all-powerful God written about in the Bible. The, the God who declared in Isaiah chapter 46, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. God says, in other words, there's no one else who can do this, and that has certainly proven to be the case. No other book in the world today is able to substantiate its claims with this kind of supernatural ability to rightly foretell human events. There are no fulfilled prophecies in the Quran, the Hindu Vedas, the Book of Mormon, or any other sacred religious writing. Not one. Fulfilled prophecy is something that sets the Bible apart from every other religious book. And that is the first line of evidence that the Bible really is the Word of God, fulfilled prophecy. Let's consider a second line of evidence for the Bible, and that is what we call archaeological evidence. Archaeological evidence. Many critics who brush off the Bible as a compilation of folklore and legends do so completely overlooking the fact that thousands of archaeological discoveries over the past century have verified over and over again the historical reliability of the Bible. And you don't need to take my word for it. You can take this man's word for it, Dr. Nelson Gluck. Who's he? Well, he's considered to be one of the greatest archaeologists of all time. He's been credited with more than 1,500 archaeological discoveries in the Middle East. What would he have to say regarding archaeology in the Bible? Listen to his uh, expert opinion. He said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted, in other words, disproved or overturned 
a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries, end quote. Dr. Nelson Gluck. Allow me to tell you about a few of these discoveries. This first one was found in the town of Dan, a little north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, up until 1993, there was not a shred of evidence anywhere outside of the Bible that David, the king of Israel, ever existed. And so critics of the Bible used to point that out. They'd say, well, (laughs) how can you Christians and Jews believe these stories in the Old Testament that talk about David? He's not mentioned anywhere in the annals of history outside of the Bible. That sounds pretty suspicious to us. And they would use that as evidence for the unreliability of the Bible. Well, their skepticism regarding David collapsed overnight in 1993 when this piece of an ancient monument dating back to 900 years before Christ was discovered in the town of Dan mentioning David, the king of Israel. Time Magazine did a big story on this discovery, and a short excerpt from their article summarizes it all. The skeptics claim that King David never existed is now hard to defend, end quote. Indeed it is. Another fascinating discovery has to do with a man named Pontius Pilate. And by the way, these aren't actual portraits of um, the persons, um, just in case you're wondering. A Bible college student came up to me after class one day. I, I used to teach at the Calvary Chapel Bible College. He said, Were those, was that a real painting? Like, like a, an actual portrait from the time period. <laughs> so sometimes I feel like I need to clarify that, but not for you. You guys, are, you guys are on top of it. Now, okay, so the New Testament authors, they tell us that the Roman governor at the time of Christ was this man, Pontius Pilate. He oversaw Jesus' trial and then had him sentenced to death by crucifixion. Was he a legendary figure, perhaps? You know, just a villain that the authors created as they were making up the whole story about Jesus? No. In June of 1961, a team of Italian archaeologists were doing an excavation in Caesarea along the beautiful shore there of the Mediterranean Sea in Israel. And while digging in the jumbled ruins of this ancient Roman theater, these archaeologists made an amazing discovery. They uncovered a limestone block that bore an inscription in Latin dating to the early part of the first century that mentioned Pontius Pilate prefect or governor of Judea. So this inscription verified for us that Pontius Pilate was an actual historical person, that he reigned in the very position ascribed to him in the Gospels, and as prefect, he would have had the authority to condemn or pardon Jesus, just as the Gospel accounts report. Some other fascinating discoveries include ancient extra-biblical accounts of a catastrophic flood, the ruins of Jericho, as well as the collapsed walls spoken of in the book of Joshua, chapter 6. The ruins of Nineveh, where Jonah went and preached, have been unearthed in northern Iraq. Uh, Hezekiah's tunnel, mentioned in 2 Kings, chapter 20, built to secretly channel water into the city of Jerusalem uh, around 700 B.C., Uh, Ancient Babylonian tablets have also been unearthed. These ancient extra-biblical historical records verify for us that the Babylonians invaded the land of Judah 
besieged the city of Jerusalem and then deported the Jewish people back to Babylon as captives, just as Daniel chapter 1 and 2 Kings chapter 24 tell us that they did. Uh, the pool of Siloam has been unearthed, mentioned in John chapter 9. This is the very pool where Jesus sent the man with the mud on his eyes to wash and where his eyes were opened up. Uh, Jacob's well has been unearthed, mentioned in John chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. This is the well where Jesus met the Samaritan woman. It's covered today by a Greek Orthodox church, but the well is still there and it still produces water uh, to this day. Uh, Herod's palace that you're seeing there on top of that hill overlooking the Dead Sea has been unearthed. That fortress is mentioned in Mark chapter 6. It's the very fortress slash palace where John the Baptist was imprisoned and murdered. They've even found the underground dungeon where the prisoners were kept. Uh, the synagogue in Capernaum has been unearthed, mentioned in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, where we are told Jesus himself often taught. Friends, you can go to Israel today and see these and thousands of other discoveries with your own eyes. They are an amazing testimony to the historical reliability of the Bible. If you'd like to learn more about these archaeological discoveries, I've written a full-color book on the topic. It contains more than 100 color photographs of these kinds of discoveries I've quickly skimmed through here in our time together this morning. All right, so number one, we have fulfilled prophecy, hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. Number two, we've got thousands of archaeological discoveries. Let's continue to strengthen our case here, and we'll consider a third line of evidence for the Bible, and that is the Bible's internal consistency. The Bible's internal consistency, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the Bible's internal harmony from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, to the last book, the book of Revelation, the Bible is absolutely consistent in what it teaches. Now, the skeptic interjects and says, hold on a second here, Charlie. <laughs> Why is that an evidence of the Bible's trustworthiness? There's plenty of books that are internally consistent, internally harmonious. And I would agree. Years ago, before I went into pastoral ministry, I worked at a surfing magazine in Laguna Beach, California, and we put out an internally consistent magazine every single month. 12 times a year, we churned out a magazine, and the authors of the various articles in the magazine never contradicted one another, at least that I know of. Does that mean perhaps then that we were writing down Holy Spirit-inspired, God-breathed scripture? No. <laughs> I can assure you of that. Well then, what makes the Bible any different than some other book or magazine that's internally consistent. Well, let me share with you a few reasons why I think the internal harmony of the Bible is an amazing evidence of its divine origin. The first reason is this. The Bible addresses life's most controversial questions. The Bible addresses life's most controversial questions. At the Surfing Magazine, we wrote about who won the latest surf contest, surf wax, Sunscreen. <laughs> I thought it was hugely important at the time. <laughs> I thought, why isn't everybody subscribing to our magazine? I, I thought it was very important. Now, looking back on it, it seems kind of trivial. But these were not the type of matters the authors of the Bible were writing about. They weren't writing about surfboard wax and sunscreen and the latest surf contest. They were tackling the big 
controversial questions of life. Questions like this, how did the universe come into existence? We never wrote about that at the magazine. Uh, does God exist? And if so, what is he like? Why do people exist? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? And what happens to people after they die? Those are the big controversial questions of life. Those are the questions people tend to disagree about. Just ask your neighbors. And yet these are the very questions that the authors of the Bible tackle head on, chapter after chapter, book after book, from beginning to end, and they do so absolutely consistently. A second factor that makes the internal harmony of the Bible evidence of its divine origin is this. The Bible is a collection of 66 different documents. 66 different documents. Now, it might be easy to have internal harmony in the Bible if the Bible was a single book, but it's not a single book. It's a compilation of more than five dozen different documents. We need to keep that in mind. A third factor is this. The Bible was written by approximately 40 different authors who wrote in three different languages. 40 different authors penning the same book, writing in three different languages, you would expect to find all kinds of chaos and confusion. I think it's reasonable to expect internal harmony in a book like the Quran, for example. Why is that? Well, because it contains the teachings of how many people? One. A man by the name of Muhammad who was born about 600 years after Jesus. Well, the Bible is entirely different than the Quran in this regard. It contains the teachings, the writings of more than 40 different people. Factor number four, the Bible was written over a period of approximately 1,500 years. The Quran was composed over a period of about 30 years. The Bible was written out over the, spreading out over the centuries, 15 centuries. Many of the authors did not even know one another. And not only were many of them separated by hundreds of years in time, factor number five, many of the authors were separated by hundreds of miles geographically. The Bible was written down in different places on three different continents, different places in Africa, Asia, and Europe. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of pulling together 40 different people spread out over 1,500 years who live on three different continents, who speak three different languages and ask them to write 66 documents regarding life's most controversial issues, I'm thinking we're going to have some serious problems. That book is going to be a confusing and difficult read. Yet, in spite of all of these factors, the Bible is a perfectly harmonious, consistent account of how God is seeking to reconcile sinners like you and me back into relationship with himself. This internal consistency is powerful evidence that the authors of the Bible were being guided by the Holy Spirit as they penned down the different books of the Bible, and that is the third reason you can be confident the Bible is the Word of God. Number three, the Bible's internal consistency. All right, moving along, let's consider a fourth line of evidence for the Bible, and that is extra-biblical writings. Extra-biblical writings, what am I talking about? 
Well, I'm talking about the fact that there are dozens of writings that survive today outside of the Bible in the remaining records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans that verify the historical accuracy of the Bible's records of different persons, places, and events. In fact, external sources verify that more than 50 persons mentioned in the Old Testament and more than 30 persons written about in the New Testament were actual historical figures. These extra-biblical writings have helped to corroborate numerous details in the Bible, including details surrounding Jesus' life. Now, some critics of the Bible today are telling people, uh, especially on the internet, it seems, you guys have figured out you can't trust everything you come across on the internet, right? Well, some of these internet atheists that I encounter, they try to tell me that there's no good evidence that Jesus actually ever lived. That is, be, that is such an absurd claim. Why would I say that? Well, because there's very good historical evidence outside of the Bible that Jesus lived. I mean, not only do we have the 27 documents that tell us about his life in the New Testament, there are more than 30 different historical sources outside of the Bible that mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. One of these extra-biblical sources that mentions Jesus is this man, a man by the name of Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a historian for the Roman Empire in the first century AD. He mentions more than a dozen individuals talked about in the New Testament, including John the Baptist, Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, and even Jesus. Here's an excerpt from one of his writings, the who he mentions. He says, at this time, there was a wise man who was called... Jesus. And his conduct was good and was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate, notice that he mentions Pontius Pilate as well, condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. This is very good historical evidence outside of the New Testament that Jesus was a real person. But this is just one of the 30-plus sources that mentions Jesus. Another source that mentions Jesus is this collection of writings, the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud is a compilation of Jewish teachings that were passed down from generation to generation amongst the Jews and then finally organized and compiled after the destruction of the Jewish temple in A.D. 70. Here's an excerpt from the Talmud that mentions Jesus. Notice this. On the eve of Passover, Yeshu, which is a Hebrew reference, to the Greek word or Greek name Jesus, Yeshu or Yeshua was hanged, speaking about the fact that Jesus was hung on the tree or the cross. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, he's going forth to be stoned because he's practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who could say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. So note that not only does the Talmud written by the Jews at the time of Jesus's life, not only does the Talmud mention Jesus, it mentions his crucifixion and the Jewish leader's desire to have Jesus put to death by how? Stoning. 
Now, of course, he wasn't stoned to death because he was handed over to the Romans. The Romans didn't stone people. They crucified people. But this all confirms what was said in John chapter 8 and John chapter 10, that the scribes and the Pharisees were seeking to have Jesus arrested so that they could stone him to death. But also notice that the Talmud says that Jesus was put to death at the time of what feast? Passover. What feast was going on according to the New Testament at the time Jesus was put to death? The Passover. And so you see how an extra biblical historical document helps to corroborate or verify certain details in the New Testament. Other historical sources outside of the Bible corroborate details surrounding uh, the flood, long lifespans prior to the flood, details surrounding the Exodus, the Assyrian invasion of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of Judah, Cyrus's freeing of Jews from Babylon, John the Baptist's murder is discussed in great detail by Flavius Josephus. Uh, the prolonged darkness on the day Jesus died is mentioned in three places outside of the New Testament. Uh, Herod Agrippa's sudden death after being hailed as a, a god in the book of Acts is also verified in Roman sources outside of the Bible. So, friend, these are just a few examples all written about in historical sources outside of the Bible. Critics who brush off the Bible as just a compilation of mythology and legends or ancient fiction only reveal that they have not done uh, any kind of serious investigation into these uh, discoveries. All right, so that was a fourth line of evidence for the Bible, extra biblical writings. Let's consider a fifth line of evidence for uh, the integrity of the Bible, and that is the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. The Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight, what am I talking about? Well, of course, many critics of the Bible, first off, would disagree that the Bible is scientifically accurate. They point to verses like Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, that says the sun stood still, or John's reference to the four corners of the earth in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, and they conclude that the Bible teaches that the sun revolves around a flat, four-cornered earth. Well, they are overlooking the fact that the writers of the Bible were not writing a technical textbook on astronomy. They were writing things as they appeared to the eye, as was the case in Joshua 10, or employing normal figures of speech, as was the case with John's reference to the four corners of the earth. And we, living in this scientifically advanced age, still do the same exact thing. We don't wake up early in the morning, throw open the eastern window and say, what a beautiful earth rotation. No, no. We say, what a beautiful sunrise, don't we? Right? You know, technically speaking, that is purely unscientific terminology. The sun's not rising. The earth is rotating. But all of us say, what a great sunrise don't we? Meteorologists tell us on the nightly news what time the sunset will be. We don't write into the news agency and claim them uh, as being unscientific. They're using simple, straightforward language to describe the way things appear. When the apostle John referred to the four corners of the earth in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, he was using a simple figure of speech to describe the extremities of the land in the four cardinal directions, north, south, east and west. And we still use the same figure of speech today. Not only was it popular in John's day, it's still popular today. I was on CNN's website a few weeks ago, and in one of their articles, they were boasting about the fact that they have sent their reporters out to the four corners of the earth to track down their stories. And I thought, 
there you go. Even CNN uses this figure of speech, <laughs> just like John did. And I don't see people protesting outside the CNN offices, you know. They teach a flat earth. So keeping in mind that the writers of the Bible described things in simple terms as they appeared to the eye and that they occasionally employed figures of speech, metaphors, personification, and such, just like we do, this does away with many of the alleged scientific inaccuracies in the Bible. Now, <clears throat> granted, Scripture is out of sync with some of the philosophies and theories some scientists hold to, the most obvious being atheistic naturalism and the theory of biological macroevolution. If a scientist today believes that everything that exists came into being from nothing and by nothing and then evolved to its current state via a mindless series of unguided natural causes, then yes, the Bible is out of sync with that. That goes without saying. But when it comes to known testable, verifiable facts, the Bible has been found to be in perfect harmony with the way things really are, uh, which I think is incredible when you think about it, because as you know, the Bible was written two to 4,000 years ago, long before the invention of microscopes, telescopes, satellites, and other technologies that have allowed us to investigate our earth and the universe. The fact that the Bible was written so long ago and yet does not contain any scientific errors might be considered a miracle in itself. Why is that? Well, without exception, every ancient religious writing has certain unscientific views of astronomy, medicine, hygiene, and so on. For example, the Hindu Vedas teach that the earth is flat and triangular. Uh, they also teach that earthquakes are the result of elephants shaking their bodies <laughs> underneath the ground. Uh, the Quran and the Book of Mormon contain numerous scientific errors as well. I'll be talking more about that uh, tonight. But the Bible steers free of these kinds of errors. But not only that, it makes known amazing facts about our world and the universe thousands of years before scientists discovered that they were actually true. Allow me to share with you just two quick examples, and I'll tell you where you can learn more about uh, these at the end of the teaching. But the first example has to do with the shape of the earth. The shape of the earth. The ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, and Chinese are on record for having believed and taught that the world was flat. That was pretty much the prevailing view in ancient times. But remarkably, the Bible went against the prevailing views of the day and indicated that the earth was actually a round sphere. Where did it say that? Well, in a book thought to be written about 2000 BC, Job tells us in Job chapter 26, verse 10, that God has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Well, that's fascinating. Let me break down for you what he just said. Job says that God has drawn a circle. Where? On the surface of the waters. That's a reference to the oceans. Where? At the boundary of light and darkness. A circle? On the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness? This boundary between light and darkness, of course, is where evening and morning occur, depending on what side of the planet you live on. But notice that the boundary is not a square or a triangle. It's a circle. Why is that? Well, because the earth is round. Remember, Job tells us this in a book thought to be written about 2000 B.C., 
Another verse that speaks of the circular shape of the earth is found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, where Isaiah says that God sits above the circle of the earth. So that's the first example. The Bible is amazing scientific foresight. Here's a second example. This one has to do with the suspension of the earth. What am I talking about? Well, ancient Hindus believed that the earth rested on the backs of elephants who stood on the back of a turtle. Um, <laughs> that's some turtle. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> uh, some of the ancient Greeks believed that the mythical god Atlas carried the earth on his back, punishment uh, by Zeus. Uh, apparently, they, they thought. Something has to support the earth, they reasoned, and there were all kinds of crazy theories long ago. Well, what did the Bible have to say regarding this matter? Well, Job chapter 26, verse 7 says that God stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. No turtles. <laughs> no elephants. Nothing. God has just suspended the earth there, unattached in space. Brothers and sisters, this is astounding because scientists were still trying to figure these things out thousands of years later. Now, these kinds of statements in the Bible raise a question. How in the world did the authors of the Bible, living so long ago, know these kinds of things? Were they taking wild guesses, perhaps? No. I think their perfect accuracy rules that out, especially when you consider the fact that they made dozens of these kinds of statements. I just had time to share two quick examples. Well, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark as to how they knew these kinds of things. In verses like 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were taking wild guesses about things totally beyond their grasp. The shape of the earth and what's holding the earth up out in the universe. No, they, they were moved by the Holy Spirit to pin down the things that they pinned. In other words, the God who knows all that he knows about the universe he created, he superintended, he came alongside the writers of the different books of the Bible to make sure that what they pinned accurately reflected the way things really are. And thus we have a Bible that can stand up to uh, great scrutiny when it comes to these types of issues. Now, so far in our time together, we've considered five lines of evidence. We're going to consider two more here momentarily. I want to pause right here, though, and point something out to you. I have purposely arranged these first five evidences in the order that I have so that if you can remember the simple acronym FACES, F-A-C-E-S, you'll have a bit of a memory aid to work from in your mind the next time you're looking into the FACES of people who are questioning you about your uh, trust or why you trust in the Bible. And so when you get into a conversation about someone who thinks the Bible is a book of mythology, the F can remind you to talk to them for a couple of minutes about fulfilled prophecies. The A can remind you that you can mention uh, the thousands of archaeological discoveries. The C reminds us of the Bible's internal consistency. The E reminds us of extra biblical historical verification. And the S reminds us of the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. All right, let's consider a sixth line of evidence here, and that is what we call manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. Critics of the Bible, like Bart Ehrman, commonly say that the Bible has been translated and copied so many times down through the centuries. We can't trust what it says today, even if the Bible was 
once trustworthy. Mormons and Muslims say the same thing about the Bible today. Well, as popular as this belief has become in our culture, it is a mistaken one. And the manuscript evidence actually proves this to be the case. What is a manuscript? Well, a manuscript is any surviving handwritten copy of an ancient document that predates the invention of the printing press in 1455. Before the printing press was invented, Jewish scribes and Christian monks hand-copied books of the Bible. That made the Bible very expensive. You know, most churches before 1455 owned one Bible for the entire church and they would chain it to the pulpit. That could throw a wrench in your quiet time, huh? <laughs> you want to read the Bible in the morning when you wake up? Nuh-uh, you don't even own one. We are so blessed today. A lot of us have multiple copies of the Bible in our homes, and we've got the Bible on our phones for free. We can access it anytime we want. God forgive us for still neglecting it. Now, these, manuscript, these handwritten manuscript copies by Jewish scribes and Christian monks, many of them survive to this day. In fact, there survives more than 25,000 partial and complete handwritten manuscript copies just of the New Testament, many dating back to within the first century or two following Jesus' life. We also possess thousands of manuscript copies of the Old Testament books, many of them even predating the time of Christ. Did you know that? There are handwritten copies of the Old Testament copied by Jewish scribes prior to Jesus' birth that still exist to this day. How are they found? Well, back in 1947, a shepherd boy tending his father's sheep in Qumran, north and to the west of the Dead Sea, in Israel made an amazing discovery while looking for a lost goat. If you ever go to Israel on a guided tour, they'll typically take you to Qumran. But there in Qumran, in a hillside cave that had laid untouched for nearly 2,000 years, this 12-year-old boy discovered a collection of large clay jars containing carefully wrapped leather manuscripts. What this boy stumbled upon was an ancient collection of handwritten copies of the Old Testament that dated as far back as the 3rd century before Christ. This was truly an incredible discovery. Well, archaeologists were called in and then spent years searching the surrounding caves. By the time they were done, copies of every book of the Old Testament had been found with the exception of Esther. In some cases, there were multiple copies of the same book. For example, there were 19 copies of the book of Isaiah, 25 copies of Deuteronomy, and 30 copies of the Psalms. They found eight hundred scrolls. What you're seeing right now on the screen is one of the original clay jars and a photograph of one of the scrolls of the Psalms. Here's a photograph of one of the scrolls of Isaiah. This particular scroll there on the screen has been dated to at least a hundred years before Christ. They opened it up upon its discovery. It was 26 feet long, not a single paragraph missing when compared to a modern day copy of the Old Testament. Now, why do I mention the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, because manuscripts like the Dead Sea Scrolls have allowed biblical scholars and textual critics to go back and verify that the Bible we have and use today is the same Bible the early church had and used 2,000 years ago. You can go to different museums today in Israel. The British Museum has some. Oxford University Library has some of these manuscripts on display. And you can bring your Bible along and compare it. 
Okay, and you can go to England and see, okay, well, here's a manuscript of John's gospel that dates all the way back to the second century. Let's see if my Bible today says the same thing it said nearly 2,000 years ago. My friends have been telling me the Bible's been all tampered with and corrupted. And then you can compare it to the manuscript that still survives from nearly 2,000 years ago and see that your Bible today says the same thing it used to say 2,000 years ago. Now, it's important to point out to you that even if we did not have any surviving manuscript copies of the Bible, there's another way of verifying that we have accurate copies of the Bible, and that's by examining the writings of the church fathers. By church fathers, I'm referring to those leaders in the church of the first three centuries following the original disciples. Men like Ignatius, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Polycarp preserved the Bible for us in their writings and in their Bible commentaries and in their sermons, many of which survive to this day. How so? How do they preserve the Bible for us? Well, by including numerous quotations of the Bible in what they wrote. In fact, they quoted the New Testament alone more than 86,000 times in the first three centuries of the Christian church. 86,000 citations just of the New Testament in the first three centuries? Yes, and here's something most people don't realize. Their writings survive to this day. At least many of them do. You can go to Amazon.com this afternoon and buy an encyclopedic size set, 38 volumes, and see with your own eyes numerous quotations of both the Old and the New Testament by the early church fathers. And compare it to what your Bible says today, and you'll see again and again that the Bible says the same thing today that it said in the first three centuries of church history. In fact, there are enough quotations from the early church fathers that even if we did not have a single manuscript copy of the Bible, scholars could still reconstruct nearly the entire New Testament just from their writings, just from their quotations. Now, it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that God has preserved his word. Jesus himself In Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Where Jesus' words recorded for us? In the Bible, God's given us his assurance he's going to watch over and preserve his word. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures for how long? Forever. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and consider a seventh and final evidence for the Bible that we have time to discuss today, and that is the persecution the early Christians endured. The persecution the early Christians endured. Flavius Josephus, Eusebius, Tertullian, and other independent extra-biblical sources record for us that many of Jesus' earliest followers, including the apostles, suffered intense persecution and even death for their ongoing belief and preaching that Jesus was Lord and was risen from the dead. We're told in these extra biblical sources that Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, was slain with an axe in Ethiopia. We're told that Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, died in Alexandria in northern Egypt after having been cruelly dragged to death through the streets of that city. We're told that Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, was hung to death upon an olive tree in Greece. We're told that John the Apostle was tortured and exiled to the Isle of Patmos. We're told that James, the brother of John, was beheaded 
in Jerusalem. This is written about in the New Testament as well, Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, we're told that Philip was hung up against a pillar in the city of Hierapolis and then stoned to death. We're told that Bartholomew was flayed alive. Jude shot to death with arrows. Andrew, Peter's brother, one of the 12, bound to a cross and just left there to die. We're told that Barnabas was stoned to death. We're told that Paul, after a variety of floggings, tortures, and persecutions, was finally beheaded with a sword in the city of Rome. We're told that Thomas was run through the body with a spear in southeast India. And we're told that Peter was crucified on a cross upside down. Question for you. In light of these revelations, were these men lying? Were these men lying? I find it hard to believe that men who were willing to die, these excruciatingly kinds of painful deaths, were just making up a story about Jesus. Nobody willingly endures persecution and these kinds of deaths for something they're just making up. Oh, sure, there are some Muslim terrorists today who are willing to die and unfortunately murder people for what they believe in, Islam. But that's because they think Muhammad was a prophet. And Muhammad promised those who died in jihad immediate entry to paradise and 72 virgins. And so some Muslim men, hoping that's true, thinking that that's true, are willing to die for Islam today. But if these Muslims lived back in the 7th century at the time of Muhammad and knew for certain that Muhammad was not a prophet of God, well, then they would not be strapping explosives around their waist and blowing themselves up. No one dies for someone they know is just a false prophet. Jesus' disciples who lived all the way back in the first century and who were at a place historically to know for certain whether or not they had seen Jesus alive after his crucifixion traveled all over the Roman Empire and beyond telling people about Jesus. They endured persecution, torture, and martyrdom claiming all the way to the end that the long-awaited Messiah and Savior of the world lived among them, became a sacrifice for our sins, and that he rose from the dead. That to me is compelling evidence that these men were telling us the truth about Jesus. Friends, you can trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible. You can read it with confidence. And I do encourage you to read it. Don't let it gather dust. So many Christians today are allowing the Bible to gather dust, and then they wonder why their lives are a wreck. And why they're struggling with, you know, ongoing patterns of sin and depression and emptiness, you know, the, the things that they used to struggle with before they became a Christian. They've cut themselves off from God's source of encouragement. God wants us to regularly pick up the scriptures so that he can speak the truth into our lives. He wants to encourage you. He wants to remind you of who he is. He wants to give you wisdom for the decisions you're facing. He wants to teach you how to live a fruitful life that he can bless and he wants to have a relationship with you. That's why Jesus, God in the flesh, died on the cross. Because of his great love for you, he died there, the Bible says, in your place to suffer the judgment you and I deserve for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be rescued from spending eternity in hell and be brought back into a relationship with him. He rose from the grave three days later, and today God is inviting all humanity 
to come to him, to inherit the free gift of everlasting life and the forgiveness of sins to any who is willing to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. How can you be reconciled to God? Romans chapter 10 says, whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart, God raised him from the dead, he shall be saved. How simple is that? Acts chapter 16, verse 31, Paul and Silas, they're shouting out to this uh, prison guard. He, he, he asked them, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I love their simple response. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. God's made it so simple. He's done all the work. He just wants you to acknowledge that the work's been completed on the cross on your behalf. I encourage you to do that today while there's still time while there's still time for you. Because one day you will give an account before your maker. You wanna make sure you're found on that day cleansed of your sins. So don't put it off, amen? Amen. Hey, before we close in prayer and have the worship team back up, just wanna quickly mention that uh, we have two resources out there in the foyer from which I gathered this entire presentation. I've written a book on this topic and I also have an 83-minute uh, DVD on this topic and I've compiled everything from the talk today from these two sources. So if you wanna go back over anything I shared with you today or even explore additional lines of evidence or even these same evidences but in a more in-depth fashion, I encourage you to stop by our table. We've got some copies of that out there for you, for those of you interested. And then I also brought some copies of this book along with me that I thought I'd highlight. Um, One Minute Answers to Skeptics Top 40 Questions. In this book, I address lots of those common questions that we didn't touch on today. Uh, Questions like, well, what evidence do you have that God even exists? And, And if God exists, why does he allow evil and suffering? And how can you Christians say that Jesus is the only way for a person to be saved? And what about those who've never even heard of Jesus? And what about these contradictions I've heard about in the Bible and the lost books that never ended up in the Bible? Uh, Where do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? And, And what about the theory of evolution? Hasn't that proven to be true? And how could all the races have come from Noah's family after the flood with all their different skin colors? Ever heard any of those kinds of questions? Well, I've put out this book to help equip Christians with some short, concise ways to answer those common questions in a conversational, on-the-street type of matter. There's, a, there's big books on apologetics. This is not one of those. This is a concise book to help you in conversations with non-Christians. So I thought I'd highlight those items uh, before we pray. Let's go ahead and pray, though.